I woke up to see a priest hovering above me, giving me last rites. And I thought to myself, this can't be, I'm Jewish. And, um, but then I did, I saw the white light. I felt it pulling me. And I pulled myself back because I just had to live. I had too many paintings to paint. I had too much life to, to have. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Do you believe in do-overs? At this point in your life, do you wish you could have a do-over? <laughs> I'm not looking for a do-over exactly, but I do find that I'm always searching within myself for the courage to keep taking chances. I find myself constantly looking for evidence that it's not too late for me to do the things I never had the confidence to try when I was younger. I'm happy to say I find that evidence on a regular basis. My guest today is living proof that it is never too late to start a new career. In fact, she embarked on her fifth career as a writer about five years ago. Her name is Brana Yasky, and her debut book, Slow Dancing with Fire, A Memoir of Resilience, launched in May of 2022 and takes us back in time to when she was a promising young artist whose life was nearly cut short by a horrible accident. It really is a great story about resilience. But before we get into the conversation with Brana, I want you to know that this podcast episode is made possible by Midlife Cues, which is a weekly newsletter by Lou Blazer about intentional living and personal growth in midlife. I love Sunday mornings because I can ease into the day at a slower pace, and the latest installment of Midlife Cues is always waiting for me in my inbox on Sunday mornings. I love reading it because it's filled with ideas that spark my sense of what's possible as we age. And you can make this part of your Sunday morning ritual too, all you need to do is go to midlifecues.com to subscribe for free. What do you have to lose? It's a great deal. Okay, without further ado, here's Brana Yasky. Let's go. Hi, Brana. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks, Yvonne. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so eager for people to hear your story and as I was looking at your website, something struck me. What it says here on the website is, in a topsy-turvy world, when people are questioning how they want to live, her story encourages everyone to believe that do-overs are possible while addressing the universal issues of beauty, identity, and visibility versus invisibility. Yeah. That, whew. So let's back up to memoir that you've written, right? You're going back to something that happened 30 something years ago. Is that right? 1982. But the whole time span of the book is from 1982 to 1993. 
Gotcha. So what I love is that here you are and, and do you mind me asking how old you are now? I'm 60 plus. Okay, great. And in the book, well, what happened to you happened to you in your thirties, right? Yeah. My very early thirties, very early thirties and changed the course of your life. Yes. It changed the course of my life, but the, the main thing about what happened, I, I'll just give you a little background because I think it's important. Um, I had come to New York in 1979. I, I am a New Yorker, but I was in California for 12 years and I studied painting and alternative and experienced alternative lifestyles. But I came to New York because I was doing very well as a painter in California. And being a New Yorker, I wanted to make it in my hometown, New York. And um, luckily and miraculously, I, I got there. My brother had my brother was living in Tribeca in a loft with his lover. And, you know, Tribeca was like off the map in 1979. Mm -hmm. And I stayed with him and I thought, this is where I want to live. And I found my own loft. And um, I, I was so happy I had this dream loft. Well, it was little, but for me, it was a dream loft. I looked, it looked over the Hudson River wow. and I found a gallery within a few months and they sold my work. So all I had to do was paint, paint and hang out at night, ha hang out with artists, go to art openings, go to the mud club, go to studio 54. I was living my dream life. And, you know, when you're 30, Looking back now, everyone's beautiful when they're 30. I mean, you know, how can you not be beautiful when you're 30? Youth, youth is an elixir and um, in that way, uh, even if you don't know you're beautiful. But for me, I just was like, when I went into a room, people noticed I was there. If whatever, you know, it, it was my life. But mm -hmm. um so I, I was boiling water for coffee and thinking about the new canvas I was going to paint. And I lifted the, the, the kettle from the stove and the flame shot up and attached itself to my sleeve. Mm. And I lived alone and I was planning on being alone all day painting. And I had wood floors and I thought I should roll on the floor. But then what if the floor st gets starts getting on fire so i ran out into the hallway of my small loft building screaming for help and my neighbor saved my life but the flames spread so mm. i you know um i i was taken to the hospital and i think my favorite line in the beginning of my book is i woke up to see a priest hovering above me giving me last rites and i thought to myself this can't be. I'm Jewish. And, um, but then I did. I saw the white light. I felt it pulling me. And I pulled myself back because I just had to live. I had too many paintings to paint. I had too much life to, to have. So after a couple of years of physical recovery and many years of mental recovery, um, I was able to function again. They were going to amputate my painting arm. So I just was like in, in surgeries and in physical and occupational therapy for two years. And then um, I realized, well, 
I don't care about being in an art store so much. I just, I just, all these things started happening, you know, like physical and occupational therapy, six hours a day for a year, every day. Um, my therapist became like heroes to me. So while I was going to physical and occupational therapy, I, I um, went across the street to the new school for social research and got my degree as an art therapist and started being an art therapist. And I found that by healing other people, I could heal myself. All mm -hmm. these things had nothing to do with how I looked or fame and glory. And it was really interesting to see how, you know, like, I began doing collaborative projects. I made a film. I joined, I joined activist groups. Um, and I never and and then I of course painted and had some shows. But it was a lesson in that I no longer saw my body as, as a tool of attraction. I no I no longer had the view that most people in their 30s have. And and as I grew older and uh, into my 50s and my friends were like complaining about wrinkles and varicose veins and things like that. And I was noticing, well, I'm getting wrinkles too, but they're nothing compared to, well, the, the initial burn scars I had, which were devastating. I mean, nobody should, I, 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 nobody should experiencing that. And I thought, I need to tell my story because it's a story about how we view ourselves and about beauty and about identity and you know what it takes to feel good about yourself and that if something in your life happens it's not the end, it should not be the end of your life or 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 anything there you have options and you you have to dig, dig deeper in yourself to find those options and I never wanted a child. I never wanted to be married before the accident. My career was everything to me. All I could see was being a painter and being famous and doing that and having that life. And, and, um, and then uh, this man thought I was beautiful when nobody else, you know, and I thought I wasn't, so I married him. And, <laughs> And then we adopted a, a, a son and and I can't imagine, you know, not having been had the experience of being a mother. Yeah. And now I'm a writer and I, I have the same fury and impetus in my writing as I did when I began painting. Uh, that creativity that gets me up every morning, like I said, um, so I do believe in do-overs, absolutely. And, um, you know, and as far as getting older, I, I also, I, I got divorced as well as got married. Uh -huh. and I had sole custody of my son for most of his growing up. And I was afraid that my art wasn't going to be enough. I, I just didn't want him to, I didn't want him to be without, things and I'm talking about middle class things not basic things but you know I didn't want him to have I wanted him to have every opportunity so I got my real estate license and for for the times until he was like 20 I worked very hard as a real estate broker and not but still that I 
I was writing and painting and coming home every night and making him dinner. And um, I went to the 150th anniversary of the company that holds my license last night. So I, I went to this party and I hadn't seen most of these brokers because of COVID, because I just haven't been doing it much for a long time. And the people who were my contemporaries were like, well, we made it this far. And how are you doing? You know, like they're at the end of the road. And I said, I'm doing great. Actually, I'm writing. And, um, but it's like, it's so much about attitude. Like, I just don't believe it's over till it's really over. Preach. I am with you 100%. <laughs> There's so much that to unpack in everything that you just said. What's striking me very much is the idea of our self-image and whether or not we perceive ourselves as being attractive and how how tied that is to age for for most of us and you went through that early yeah you know and and that i mean i hear so many women as especially once they pass the 50 mark it seems to be where there's this this feeling of invisibility mm -hmm. and and I think to a certain extent, that is something that is imposed upon us by, by the general ideas of what beauty is and what we've all been told beauty is. And then there's also the fact that the idea that we've absorbed it for ourselves. And so we're looking at ourselves and passing judgment on our own looks and beauty and and basing that on the number of wrinkles we see. I mean, this this started to happen to me in my 40s. I looked in the mirror and I was like, who's that? That that's not how I see myself. You know, and I I I I didn't like what I was seeing. You know, I'm hearing in you this this do-over idea, you know, of being able to then change from art to art therapy. I know you did social justice and work with the Gorilla Girls, right? After that, becoming a mom, taking care of your child and, and becoming a real estate agent because that's what you felt you needed to do to make sure he had what he needed. And right. then pivoting again to writing. I mean, you have been a constant example of working within your own limitations, but pushing the boundaries and changing based on what was available to you or what, what you were driven to do. Does, am I on target with that? Kind of. Um, I, I hope you don't mind me going off here a little bit, but you know, women do start, it, it's pretty, it's pretty common in our society. And I, I had the same feeling for about a minute, but because I started feeling invisible when I was 30, um, you know, I had a head, head start on feeling invisible when you're 50. But so, there's, a, there's a component there of why women feel invisible. Yes, aging makes you feel little, little things happen and you don't feel on top of your game un, until you start taking better care of yourself and things like that. But there, 
we still live in a male patriarch society, which, which really makes women feel desirable when they're younger. And without that desirability of the male gaze, which as much as things are changing, they haven't changed as far as who's in charge. And that, that desirability of the male gaze gets to everybody, every woman in one way or another, either consciously or unconsciously, because it is the prevailing gaze in our society and dare I say the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, when I was younger, I traveled a lot to Mexico and I can't remember one time going when I was not almost assaulted by groups of boys because they felt they could. I was mm -hmm. a young woman in a bikini on a beach trying to go for a swim. Now I know if I went to Mexico, and I did, I took my son to Mexico uh, about six or seven years ago, and I felt totally safe. Nobody, now, then, now I'm a, uh, I'm a, hey mama, hey mama, you know? No, I felt totally safe and totally protected. So there's a plus. There <laughs> is. There, you know? There is a plus. There's <laughs> like... Um... The mother whore thing. And once you reach the stage where people think of you as a mother, whether you are or are not, you you become like, would you do that to your mother? It, <laughs> think of it that way. <laughs> you know? there, there is actually the invisibility that comes with being an older woman is actually very freeing. Yes, if you look at I it that way, that. right? I believe that. It's all how you're viewed. Mm -hmm. and, and it is the view of the male gaze, even because it's always men that view you like that. Yeah. There's a terrific documentary called This Changes Everything, which talks a lot about this in the movie industry. And it uses that term, the male gaze. And so I'm wondering if you've seen it. The documentary? No. But yeah, the documentary. The male gaze has been, that, that term has been around for like centuries because that was um, how women were always painted from ah. the Renaissance, before the Renaissance, through the male And as an gaze. artist, so through that is gaze. that is present for you as a, as a visual it's artist. It's always been, yes. Oh, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. That the what the documentary talks about a lot is that um, because most of the creators on a film set, from the director to the sound to the camera operators to the head of cinematography, all the things they tend to be men. And I can go really deep into that, but the idea being that you have the male gaze just inherently in most of the movies that we see. And the idea being that if we had more women writing, directing, oh, making yeah. making films, you would have a very different point of view on 50% of our population, you know? And what does this do to our psyches when what we're looking at is always the male gaze? Well, that, that's exactly what I was saying. Yeah. And what a difference when a woman is in control of a creative medium. What a difference. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, but so- that's what I was exactly saying that, I mean, when I got married, I married someone who was the super, um, super sensitive, supportive human being. And so I never had to live up to like the male gaze again, because as far as I was concerned, I was not a contender for in the looks department. My face was not burned. My body was, but I just didn't feel good about myself. And I had really concrete reasons not to feel good about myself. And, um, you know, then I started feeling better about myself, uh, much better, but um it it cannot be diminished how much our self-image is influenced by what men think of us or of the standards that we have to meet in society and then yes that is different than looking in the mirror and seeing someone that you don't recognize as your younger self but but then there's that step of appreciating who that person in the mirror is, you know? Who is that person in the mirror when you're 40 and when you're 50, when you're 60, when you're 70, when you're 80? If you like that person in the mirror, that person in the mirror becomes beautiful. Absolutely. You know, we I think I've been thinking so much lately about the idea of of um aging well. And I think one of the things that scared me the most about aging as I started to confront it was the idea of losing independence. It it wasn't even as much about losing, it was about losing whatever attractiveness I had as a younger person, but more than that and scarier than that for me has been the fear of losing, losing independence, losing my ability to do things for myself. Yeah. And ageism and, and ableism, they're so, so closely tied together. And I just, I guess what inspires me about your story is the, the idea that, you know, limitations were placed on you. You couldn't do art the way you had done it before, correct? And then I learned to, I have to say, I did learn to after several years. I Yeah, you found a way. But my, and, my work changed. And I think that we, if we can embrace that idea that things might happen to our bodies as we get older, that are completely it out too. of our control, right? And so, you know, who knows? I could go blind. Maybe, maybe I'm going to lose my hearing. And Instead of worrying about that so much, I'm trying to think, what would happen if we could just approach the whole idea of limitations as like, okay, this is a chance for me to grow in a different direction. You know, I've got limitations here. I can only do this much here, but what can I do over in this this part of my life? I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I I think you do. You live it. Well, it's playing, it's playing to how you feel strong and what your strengths are. I mean, like, it, you know, just recently, like I said, I, I, I go to this party and everybody's like, this is a terrible time in the real estate market in New York anyway. And everyone, a lot of people were like, oh, my business is so bad. My business is so bad. I can't wait for things to change. And these are people who were used to making a million dollars a year. <laughs> and, um, and I'm thinking to myself, 
Yeah, what does that mean? Your business is so bad. So maybe you're making half a million dollars a year mm-hmm. or a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's like there's so much more than that. And here I am, like living on a wing and a prayer at this moment, but I have faith in myself. I am so happy to be, you know, writing and, and feeling I'm in a good good writing space now where I just wake up and I I have a lot of things I want to write for the day. And it's so much more satisfying to me. And it's like something I can I I can control in a way. I can't, you can't control other people. You can't control the world. You can't control like I broke my neck um three years ago and I mm. had my C1, C2, C3 spinal fusion. So I can't turn my neck anymore. And that, you talk about physical limitations. That, I mean, I'm a walking um, disaster if you want to look at it that way, but I don't. I truly don't because it's like I, I see people in wheelchairs. I see people who who have let their bodies go and they're obese or they're, they're, they're on drugs or they're whatever, you know? I can't, I, I um, can't turn my head and at for I'm learning. I've adapted how to live in the world without turning my head. And I live in New York. And I when I had to go to physical therapy for that, I the first time I went, I went on the subway by myself to Grand Central Station. And then I had to walk. And someone shoved me on the subway station and oh started yelling goodness. at me because there are a lot of crazy people in New York. Oh yeah. I spent, and they all are on the subway. And I thought, well, I can't. I can't take a car service because I live in Brooklyn Heights, actually. Mm-hmm. It, it cost me like $120 a day to go to physical therapy. I can't do that. Right. So my son said, I'll come with you. And, you know, it was like, I'm, I, I felt lucky. I had my son. My son has been through a lot of difficulties. And my son wears a dress. And don't don't think people didn't stare at us all the time. And I was a little nervous, but he's also very big and strong. So it's like you adapt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Adapt. And, now, and now I don't need him to go on the subway with me because I, I figured it out. I figured out I'm not going to go on certain trains at certain hours. And that's the way it is. And, you know, everybody has a resource of people, even if they feel totally alone. If you really need help, you do know somebody that can help you, be it a neighbor, a friend, a family mem- member that you would never want to count on or call on. It, it's just miraculous how if, if you know that you need someone to help you do something, someone does show up and you don't have to always hire them. <laughs> you, you know, I think yes. living in the in fear of what what if something happens and I can't do whatever is like a waste of what if time. I mean, I don't, oh. I don't believe in what ifs. I really don't believe in what ifs. It worry is is just I, I do a, worry. such a I worry a lot, but right. I, not about what ifs. I worry about like well, I guess you could say what if, but they're not big what ifs. They're like, how am I going to do whatever you know. How, mm-hmm. how am I going to solve? 
it, it's more about problem solving. Yes. Yes. I hear you there. I hear you what there. Ifs. I, I, I can't help but, but wondering at what point did you decide that you wanted to write the memoir? And I think I know what was behind your driving force to do it, but I'd love to hear you talk about your why, about why you felt like it was time to write this. Well, it, it sort of came about in a, in, a, in a roundabout way because when I started selling real estate, it was really hard for me to paint as much as I wanted to or was used to because painting involves, I paint in oils, setting up. I did have a space to do it in my house. Um, I used to have a separate studio, but setting up and painting and cleaning up, it was just like too much. It wasn't enough time to get really into it, into the act of painting. So I, I took like a writing class at a Y and I thought, writing is great. I can do it on the subway. I can do it anywhere. I can do it sitting at my desk when I'm waiting for someone to call me for an appointment. I can, I, you can do it anywhere. It's so easy. Well, it's really not easy. It's really <laughs> hard. It's harder than anything <laughs> I've done, actually. Uh, but yeah, so I started writing and I started writing. I had just gotten divorced and I was writing all this stuff about, you know, how I was feeling about being divorced. And it wasn't for anyone but me. It was like getting out feelings. And that was the kind of writing class it was. It was just like, not a professional kind of writing class. And then I started realizing I really love writing. So I took a more professional writing class, one you had to like submit work to, to get into. And I I had been painting store, I had been, I, I was trained as a very realistic painter. So I had this series of paintings that were giant objects, like, um, 40 by 30 inches of things that people I knew received after someone they knew died. And it was like a biography of the object. And I had a paint and I thought, I want to write a book with these paintings that, you know, in the book, and I'm going to make up stories to these paintings. So I brought nice. my- What a cool idea. Wow. I still would like to do it. I brought I brought my stories into this writing class with all these like people who really knew about writing and I did not. And um, they're going, are you crazy? No one knows who you are. Do you think a publisher is going to spend all this money on color plates of your paintings and and just write a story? And people were kind of rude to me because I was like not a real writer. I guess. Hmm. letting people who were on a lower level of achievement of accomplishment so I was writing about these skins these, uh, these furs that like friends of mine got from grandparents and aunts and and I had painted a pile of fur, fur coats and stoles and stuff and I was writing about it and something came up about my skin and everyone in the class perked up and they go, that's your story. Because I had written something about having burnt skin. And mm. I, I, my mother wanted me to have a fur coat, but we had to wait two years to go pick it up from the furrier because I was recuperating from being burned. <laughs> I mean, it was such a roundabout thing. So I thought, 
I should write about this, but it was about 10 years ago. And I wasn't, you know, people weren't, my friends weren't quite complaining about wrinkles yet. And I wasn't like noticing wrinkles because it was like not that big a deal on my body compared to my scars. So I'm writing about in the third person, like some it's someone else's story thinking, yeah. And then I went to a writer's retreat and the person who ran it also edited people's work if they wanted. And she was like a really good editor. And she said, I don't understand why you don't put this in the first person. Why is this in the third person? Hmm. This is your story, isn't it? I said, yeah, it is. And that, and then I realized I have to write this. I have to write this. This is an important story because the things I've learned since this time, I'd like to share with people. And so that's really like, those were the logistics of how it started. Yeah. And then the sharing it with people, what, 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 what would you hope that somebody would walk away from this? Well, they read it. Yeah. My memoir is called Slow Dancing with Fire, a memoir of resilience. And the slow dancing with fire is because the I've I've always kept the the positive aspect of a fire inside of me. You know, the outside of me was burned, but the inside, the flame of 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 life, is is what drives me. And and I someone wrote a review of my book, and I think it was like. I hated the review, but she she had one line that I think is exactly what I'd like people to get from it. She said, um, when I when I read about Yasky's resilience, it makes me think about my own. And that is really what I want people to get out of it. For ever, people to tap into their own resilience, whatever that means for them. I love that. And that that speaks back to your story of like when you were in recovery and you were going through your occupational therapy and those those therapists were like heroes to you, which led you to becoming an art therapist. Because I still wanted to be a hero. <laughs> yeah. And and so it, I, I think that I'm I'm sensing a theme with what you've what, with what you've been doing of this idea of healing and um and resilience and helping other people through your own I mean what you've done is taken your own uh traumatic experience and you've turned it into being able to help other people. Well, I can tap into other people's traumas really easily. You know, yeah. it's like the way you, you when you when you meet someone or you see someone and there's something about them that you recognize in yourself, I recognize trauma very easily, all kinds of trauma because I experienced it, you know, on a very very deep level. Yeah, I do have one little question for you um, about. There was there was something that that came up in I think in not only in your email but I also saw it on your website. You're built a new life through the intertwining of art, love, and swimming. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, I what was the swimming? Because well, we haven't talked about that. Oh, swimming. 
swimming was my passion and now it's like sort of it's 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 not a, it, I have a I have a um a yearning about swimming now because when I after two years of all these therapies, my doctor, the surgeon in the burn unit who became my doc my surgeon, um said to me, You have to get out in the world again. You you know, you, you haven't been in the world at all. And she grew up going to the Hamptons for the summer. Now for me, the Hamptons were like, you know, movie star land, glamour land. Right. Yeah. And she goes, go just casually, go out to the Hamptons and I want you to swim every day. That's going to be your new therapy for you to swim in the bay every day after four o'clock when the sun is not so strong. And so my parents, and here I am, like it's time, 34 years old. My parents take me in the family station wagon out to the Hamptons for me to find a place to rent by myself. And I, they drop me off. I don't have a car. I have a collapsible bicycle. And I don't want anyone to see me. I was wearing scar compression garments from my neck, down my arms, down my legs. And wow. every day at four o'clock, I take off the scar compression garments and put on a long sleeve leotard and bicycle with, with pants on to a bay that was like three miles from where my little house was. And I started swimming, like I counted my strokes and I started swimming and and I I felt like all my scars, um, the contracting scars expanding. And in the water, the buoyancy made me feel like anything was possible, anything. And I concocted all these ways that I wanted my life to be while I was in the water. And it was like super helpful, I have to say. Sounds it was, glorious. I, and I became a long distance swimmer from that. Wow. And, you know, so it was like decades of long distance swimming. And then um, I broke my neck in this in September of 2019. So wow. my doctor said, you can, I said, what, can I swim? He said, no, you can never do the breaststroke, uh, the um, crawl again, because you can't turn your head. And I thought that was the most depressing thing to me. Of I bet, I bet, I bet. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. It was a heartwarming story. After yeah. that, um, my ex-husband, who I'd been divorced from, I had kicked him out 15, for 15 years. We were divorced. I, like I said, someone has to show up when you need someone. I called him and I said, I need your help. And he came and um, he's still living with me. <laughs> and, wow. And wow. He, and I I have a little place by the beach now and he goes with me and he's my personal lifeguard. So I'm learning how to swim on my back. And do, I was going to say backstroke, right? That could. Well, yeah. yeah and, and, oh, and strokes I'm making up. And it's never going to be the long distance swimming I used to do, which was like across the bay, mm -hmm. you know, like a mile across the bay. Now it's like I'm in the water a half hour, 45 minutes at most moving. Mm -hmm. and It's enough for me. It's enough for me because it has to be enough or else it won't be anything. So this is what I'm talking about. I just love that this is the way you approach things. It, it's we have to make adjustments. There's, you know, oh, yeah. amazing, amazing. Wow. So 
yes, swimming is, I love swimming, but don't, I, I can't deny that, you know, I see the swimmers that I, I knew from when I was swimming across the bay and they're swimming their distance and they're all, you know, not young people. I'd say over 50, over 60, some 80. And they're going really far distances. And I look at them with such longing, knowing I can never do that again. But then I go in and just being in the water is, is such a joy that I'll take it. There you go. Oh my gosh, I love that. I, I, I think I have one last question for you. Um, I hope I don't sound like too Pollyanna-ish. No, gosh, no. Not, I, I don't think you do, not at all. That You're not striking me that way at all. Um, I think I'm just blown away by your resilience. I mean, I, I can clearly see, you know, that there's been struggle and, but you've come around the other side of it. And, and that's what I hope we can all do for each other is, is take what we've struggled with. And once we can come out of it and figure out for ourselves, what is the new path forward then share that with other people so that they see that they don't have to stay in the stuck place. No, you know? there's, no there's no, no, no benefit in staying in a stuck place or in feeling sorry for yourself yeah. or in hating yourself because nothing good comes of that. Yeah. What have you learned about yourself in taking on writing the memoir at this point in your life? Well, I'm, what I learned is that now I'm writing fiction because oh. I'm writing a fiction book. I really want to tell a story that has truth to it, but that in reality, in, in, in reality of how we live, of the world, of us being humans in the world, there is no one truth. And if you're in the same place at the same time with other people, your experience of being there and experiencing them is really different than their experience of being there and experiencing you. Mm. And so I've, no, I've, I've learned so much about myself by writing my memoir and just going in these meditative states of like being back in, in my most vulnerable times that now I'm trying to write a story a, a story that is sort of more a universal story of seen from three people's points of view at the same time. And that's called fiction. So um, even though the story is something that is not, not foreign to me, some of it is because I'm making things up as I go, but that I, that's what I learned that you, you can know yourself, but you can't know other people. And I'm very curious to see if I can figure out how people that are, are close to me would experience a situation in their words, because I can see how they experience situations in my words, you know, in my thoughts of how I think they think. Right. So, you know, like, I think, I just feel like if you know yourself really well, then it's easier to kind of take a leap into understanding other people so it's understanding other people is what yeah. i like it's really now what i'm 
interested in writing about. I love a good story that's told from multiple points of view. I'm very eager to to see what's going to come from that. You've got to keep me posted, please. Oh, I'm so excited. How can people find you? How can people find your book? Um, Well, if they go on my website, they can just click a button. And my website is www.bronayaski.com. Perfect. And I'm going to have that in the show notes as a clickable link for people so that if anybody is listening right now and you're driving, don't worry. You know, you can go ahead to the show notes for this and you can click on it there. So just in case the spelling, if your spelling's off or anything like that, we'll have it all there for you. Great. Yeah. I have so enjoyed talking to you. I can't wait to see what's next for you because I know that there's going to be more. And uh, thank you. Just thank you so much for sharing your story and for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun. And so nice to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Brana's story really does give me hope that do-overs are possible. And I think every day we have on this earth is a chance for a do-over. A chance to do better than we did the day before. It's one of the benefits of getting older. We have a lifetime to look back on and let it inform our next steps. She is living proof that it is never too late to find our next passion. Speaking of which, did you know I created a free guide for you designed to help you start taking the next steps towards your next act? It's a workbook. It's called Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. I send it out to you as an email series with ideas and practical exercises that you can use over the course of several weeks to get past feeling stuck. And you can do them at your own pace as they'll be waiting for you in your inbox when you're ready for the next step. You can find the link to sign up for it in the show notes along with information about Brana Yasky and where to get a copy of her book. I will have all the links in the show notes to all the things. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com and look for episode 136. Thanks so much for being with me today and listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.